Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 11. A catastrophe had befallen the Argentinians with the sinking of the Belgrano on May the 2nd, 1982. All in all, 368 sailors died after it was torpedoed by the nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror. While Argentina's warships never ventured out to sea again, the diplomatic fallout from the sinking caused Britain to lose a great deal of good faith that she'd built up over the preceding few weeks. But it was only two days later that Admiral Anaya was going to take his revenge. Before then, a few bits of action were recorded. On the night of the 2nd of May, a Sea King helicopter was fired on by the Argentinian naval vessel, the Alfred Sobral, about 100 nautical miles north of the Falklands. The helicopter escaped damage and flew back to HMS Glasgow and Coventry. They were based nearby. Two Lynx helicopters took off and, guided by the Sea King, took aim at the Sobral, firing two Sea Skua missiles. The British recorded two explosions, and the echo of the Sobral seemed to die away. They thought it had been sunk, but it hadn't. Alvarez Sobral, second-in-command Lieutenant Sergio Bazan, was alerted by the signalman who'd spotted two lights in the distance on the starboard side. They were exhausts of the approaching Sea Skua missiles. One hit the ship's fiberglass boat on the deck. The second flew over the bridge. The crew of the 20mm gun were injured, one seriously, and the gun crew on the port side opened fire on the departing missile. Then two more missiles hit the ship. The radio room and bridge had taken direct hits. The radio operator had shell splinters all over his body. Four others were dead. When I went up to the bridge, said Bazan, I found it completely destroyed in a fire building on the starboard side. The captain and a seaman were dead. It had been a direct hit, and there were parts of bodies all over the bridge. Two other men were killed below deck, eight injured. Lieutenant Bazan took over, but he had a problem. While the hull was intact and the ship could steam, its radio and gyro compass were flattened, and he was forced to maintain course by looking at the waves and maintaining direction based on their angle. It took 24 hours before they heard a signal from land on their hand-cranked life raft emergency radio. Then, on the afternoon of the 3rd of May, two Eremachis of the 1st Naval Attack Squadron, based at Stanley Airfield, were dispatched to investigate a ship out at sea. When nothing was found, they returned, but Sub-Lieutenant Carlos Benitez miscalculated his height in bad weather and was too low on final approach. He hit rocks just offshore, tore off a wing, and then crashed into Cape Pembroke two miles from the runway. The pilot was killed in the accident. An RAF Vulcan from Ascension Island dropped another 21 1,000-pound bombs on Stanley Airfield a little later, but missed the runway and hit two soldiers who were killed. Both were buried the next day. And later in the morning of the 4th of May, Sea Harriers staged a further raid on Goose Green, and the second aircraft over the target was flown by Lieutenant Nick Taylor, which was hit by radar-controlled anti-aircraft fire and dove straight into the ground. Taylor did not eject and became the first Harrier casualty of the war. 5% of the Harrier strength was gone in that moment. But it was what happened later on the 4th of May that was to change the British Navy's tactical deployment. This would involve one of the most successful missiles ever manufactured by the French, called the Exocet. And the man responsible for designing the Exocet was French engineer Emile Stoff, a father of six, a large man with a Gallic moustache and a baritone voice. Since 1946, he had been building weapons including the Milan anti-tank missile, the Hot Rod aerial anti-tank and the Roland surface-to-air missile. 
The British were going to use the Milan as a bunker buster, as you'll hear in the later episodes. So all of these death weapons were sold around the world at great profit. Staff was planning a cheap, easy-to-use anti-ship missile that could sink a large modern warship, but at first his research took time because no one would fund it. As he sat in Aerospatiale outside Paris, the French government ignored his idea until 1967, when, during the course of the Six-Day War, an Israeli destroyer was sunk by a single missile fired by a small Egyptian patrol boat. That led to a great deal of design head-scratching globally, and Stoff found that his idea had hit investment pay dirt. The secret of the Exocet's success is its supremely sensitive radio altimeter. Exocet is the French name for a species of flying fish, and Stoff wanted his missile to fly just above the waves, making it difficult to detect and almost impossible to stop. When he trialed the Exocet later in 1967, the British were so impressed that they bought 1,800 Twenty-six other countries also purchased the ship Killer, being sold for a relatively cheap £300,000 each, including the Argentinians. Buenos Aires was so impressed that the country bought both a surface-to-surface Exocet and a later breed called the Exocet AM39, designed to be fired from aircraft. And to carry these dangerous weapons, the Argentinians also bought 14 Super Attendard fighters made by Dassault for another US$160 million. By 1981, the best pilots in the Argentinian Air Force were being trained to use these. First, they were sent to Toulon in southwest France, then to Landivision in Brittany for familiarization training. By late 1981, the first five attendants and five Exocet AM-39s were delivered to the Argentinians. From now on, they had probably the most effective weapon of the war, and the Exocet was thought to be able to sink a ship of any size, even a carrier. The AM-39 is what is called a fire-and-forget missile, travelling at 10 feet above the waves at 680 miles per hour, very close to the speed of sound. It delivers 363 pounds of high explosive with enormous kinetic energy. It pulverises steel and titanium and humans. That was one of the reasons that the Argentinians had expected the task force to head towards its attendard base and bomb it at the start of the war, Instead, the British had preferred to try and entice the Argentinian Navy and Air Force out of their lairs. Furthermore, only HMS Broadside and HMS Brilliant were armed with short-range Seawolf missiles that could be used in any way against the Exocet, but even these were not very effective. None of the other ships had weapons that could shoot down this remarkably effective French missile. And it's here that the British made a fatal miscalculation based on patchy information but it wasn't all their fault. They thought it highly improbable that Argentina would launch an aerial Exocet attack. The events, which took place a few days after the sinking of the Belgrano, were going to prove just how badly they'd miscalculated. The reason the British had faulty intelligence went like this. The French government had supported the British fully in their UN diplomacy, and they'd backed sanctions against Buenos Aires. They also provided Britain with tactical support by sending Mirage fighters to indulge in dogfight practices against the Sea Harriers because the Argentinians had Mirages. Buenos Aires was furious when the French also provided top-secret details about the Aviation Navoc, the Argentinian attendards, and the Exocets. However, a small matter of timing was to prove confusing. At the very moment the Falklands were invaded on April 2nd, 
A team of aerospatial technicians were supposed to be sent to Buenos Aires to assist with the matching of the missiles to the Etendards. This was a complicated process, making sure that the missile launcher attached to the wing would accurately interpret the pilot's inputs as to the precise target before the fire-and-forget weapon would be sent on its way. As part of the sanctions, the French government ordered Aerospatial to cancel its mission and for the technicians to be grounded back in France until further notice, and London was informed that it happened. It duly cancelled any further missions to assist the Argentinians. What both the French and the British diplomats didn't know was that Aerospatial French technical team had already left for Argentina months before the Falkland crisis. They had been there since November 1981, and they weren't recalled. So from April 2nd onwards, this team of boffins gave enthusiastic help to the Argentinians as they prepped the attendards and the Exocet launches. The Sunday Times Insight team interviewed the leader of this nine-man group. Hervé Collin of Dassault said they'd stayed in Argentina because they were never ordered to pull out, even though he was in almost daily communication with the French company throughout the war. I wouldn't say we were forgotten, he said. Let's just say we were here and nobody asked us to go home. Some could say that the French were playing a little trick on the British in order to see how well their exocet performed in war conditions. But those would be conspiracy theorists. We just don't know why there was this obvious gap between the French government orders and one of its state-linked arms companies. So the French team continued working at the base Esporta headquarters of the 2nd Attack Squadron. They fitted the missiles and during testing discovered three of the launchers had developed faults and these were fixed. Essentially, the aircraft has a box inside which it provides instructions to the Exocet and a second device, a missile launch, is placed under the wing which talks to the box. Once these two are in communication, it is relatively simple to mount the missile, said Hervé Collin. On October 19th and 20th, the Etendards were flown south to the war base at Rio Grande. The French team offered to fly to the base to finalize testing, but by then the Argentinians were trained and they didn't need any more assistance, they said. Crew members of the HMS Sheffield were now living on borrowed time. Out among the British ships, the crews were working their defense watches, second-degree readiness, it's called. The surveillance radars were picking up false echoes suggesting incoming aircraft, what was known as anomalous propagation. Several of the ships were chatting about this problem. HMS Coventry was in contact with HMS Sheffield, which had taken over Coventry's usual station at the southwest corner of the task force, about 40 miles south of Port Stanley. When the war erupted, most of Sheffield's crew thought they wouldn't be joining the task team. They were off Gibraltar and on their way home after four and a half months at sea. That's quite a stint for a small destroyer. After deployment on April 2nd, some thought they wouldn't be heading further south than Ascension Island. Eventually, and ironically, HMS Sheffield was the first surface ship to reach the total exclusion zone ahead of the task force. Sheffield's job was to act as the forward air defense picket closer to the mainland than it was to the task force. She was there to provide early warning of an attack and some thought of her as expendable. The ships of the British task force had sailed south believing there wasn't a real aerial danger from the Exocet. All the briefings from then on included Exocet shore-to-ship dangers, surface-to-surface dangers, very few air-to-surface. The weather was relatively calm in the morning of 4th of May, and visibility fair. The Argentinian pilots, though, say visibility was bad, and the cloud ceiling was 300 feet. Perhaps the local weather was different. 
Captain Sam Salt was a 42-year-old submariner whose father had died in wartime submarines and whose godfather was Red Rider, who'd won a VC at Saint-Nazaire. Captain Salt was a short, balding man, popular throughout the Navy and had taken command of the HMS Sheffield across the world at Mombasa in Kenya in January 1982. Her ship's company had been at sea for five months by now, a total of 30,000 miles of what Captain Salt called trouble-free motoring. The trouble, however, was well on its way. Before dawn on the 4th of May, a report came in to Superintendent Dodds at Rio Grande from their Neptune reconnaissance aircraft. It had made firm radar contact with British ships south of the Falklands. It took more than two hours to prepare the complicated Superintendent mission. Squadron 2nd in command, Lieutenant Commander Augusto Bedacarats and Sub-Lieutenant Armando Mayora eventually took off at 0945. Meanwhile, the Neptune had remained in contact with the British ships for more than three hours, a really dangerous thing to do as this was an extremely slow-flying aircraft. They were flying zigzag courses to create the impression they were searching for survivors from the Belgrano sinking on the 2nd of May. They had spotted four British ships steaming eastwards. Three were identified as the Coventry, Glasgow and Sheffield, and they thought the fourth was possibly the aircraft carrier Hermes. The Neptune provided a final report just after 10 a.m. as the Super 8 Tendards had completed a quick refueling with their Hercules tanker and the world's first Exocet mission was on its way. The HMS Sheffield crew was suffering from the inevitable rundown of stores after being at sea for so long. There was no more beer nor chocolates, or nutty, as the sailors called it, and they could only have potatoes once every two days. Despite this, morale was high. The crew were like a proverbial family by now. They ignored the fact that the Type 42 destroyer class had deficiencies. When these ships were built, government was cutting costs, so decided to shorten it by 30 feet. The hull shape meant it was difficult in a heavy sea, but something far more deadly was the decision by the British government to cut its armament to reduce the top weight because it was shortened. The Type 42s only carried the sea dart, not the sea wolf protection, which meant it could not engage low-level targets. And of course, the Exocet was extremely low level. Sheffield's Air Warfare Officer, Lieutenant Commander Nick Bartow, was sitting in the operations room that morning when radar picked up a contact, apparently an incoming aircraft. It was heading towards them from the west, and Bartow informed the officer on the bridge, Lieutenant Peter Walpole. The missile director, as they were known, was Chief Petty Officer Adamson, who began typing into the keyboard of the ADORS 4 computer, trying to kick-start the machine to point out a possible target. The British ships had been told there could be a danger from 18 Dards firing exosets, but they'd be coming in at medium height. This radar contact was far closer than the 45 miles they were told was the likely point of firing, and much lower, so they really didn't think it was a possible airborne missile attack, and you can't blame them. Adamson and others in the ops room thought it was a Harrier, or perhaps a Mirage, or even a Skyhawk on a bombing mission. The British had also expected something like 20 minutes warning between the detection of incoming planes, usually MiGs flying at high altitude, but now they had less than two and a half minutes. Remember, they'd spent recent years tracking Russians who had a completely different operating procedure. Sub-Lieutenant Mayora, piloting one of the Super 18 Dards, explained later how they had descended from 350 miles away. When they passed south of the Falklands, they climbed to 2,000 feet and switched on radio for three seconds but saw nothing. They dropped down and flew another 20 miles before climbing again. This time, the squadron leader spotted a radar signal on the right and a smaller on the left. 
They thought it was an aircraft carrier and two escorts, so both headed towards the larger target, thinking they would have a better chance to sink it together. They didn't realize how close they were, therefore the target looked large. They hit the afterburners, flying at 500 knots. Everything from now on had not been practiced. At 20 miles out, Bedakarat's shouted launch, and it was four minutes past 11 in the morning. Both missiles ran parallel towards the Sheffield at close to the speed of sound. On the bridge, Lieutenant Walpole and Sheffield's Lynx helicopter pilot, Lieutenant Brian Lation, spotted smoke on the horizon. Both suddenly realized what it was. My God, it's a missile, exclaimed Lation. Five seconds later, the Exocet, traveling at 680 miles per hour, hit the Sheffield amidships and its warhead exploded. The Exocet had been fired from point-blank range less than six miles away and detonated eight feet above the waterline on deck two near the forward engine room, splitting the hull ten by four feet. The blast tore watertight doors from bulkheads and blew forward and upwards and aft towards the bridge. A fire started and Captain Salt had sprinted to the bridge to find that all power was lost and his comms were out of action. The ship was filling with smoke and he gave the order to evacuate the lower decks to save the men. The casualties were relatively light because the ship was at defence watch, not action stations. That had saved many who had been thronging the central passages when the missiles struck. Most of those killed were in the galley preparing supper or trapped in the computer room below the ops room. Many of the watertight doors could not close because the ship had been warped by the power of the Exocet and it was impossible to move between the forward and aft sections of the Sheffield below decks. The heat of the fires was intense, and in a terrible coincidence, the water main had been fractured by the explosion, so there was no way of fighting the flames. Shocked and blackened men gathered on the upper deck, some trying to start the portable gas turbine pump, but its starting chains snapped. Portable submersible pumps were lowered over the side, but they were feeble. Others began using buckets on ropes. The men below deck were being brought up with ventilators, but there were only eight. The heat could be felt on the upper deck through the seamen's boots while the side of the ship was steaming. The forward superstructure was glowing in places. Twenty miles away, the Invincible could see plumes of black smoke rising on the horizon, and two frigates, the Arrow and Yarmouth, were dispatched to Sheffield's aid. HMS Yarmouth arrived first and began firing anti-submarine mortars close to a small Gemini in which three men were floating alongside the hole in the Sheffield. They were trying to extinguish the fire from the outside. Yarmouth's captain said they'd picked up a submarine nearby, but Captain Salt thought his men's lives were in danger. As the fight against the fire continued, Salt looked at his watch, thinking about 40 minutes had passed since the ship had been hit. It was four hours. More than 40 casualties had been reported, with most suffering from smoke inhalation and burns. One of the petty officers went below to try and find out how badly the ship was damaged. He was never seen again. The fires were now only one compartment away from the Sea Dart magazine. It was obvious the crew had to abandon ship. As the frigates nearby chased what they thought was a submarine threat, the captain had to make a snap decision. It was a bitter moment for Captain Salt, who then gave the order to abandon Sheffield. HMS Arrow Commander Paul Boothiston brought his ship alongside and the men began to jump onto its deck from the Sheffield. Others were winched up over hovering sea kings, Eventually, a handful of men remained behind on the forecastle and the flight deck, and then there were none. Twenty-one sailors had died. More than forty were injured. The Sheffield was to drift for three days before Captain Salt returned 
and boarded her on the 9th. She was taken in tow then by Yarmouth, which was trying to get her to South Georgia. Then perhaps she could be towed home. But early on the morning of the 10th of May, at the edge of the total exclusion zone, the sea began to rise, the wind began blowing, the Sheffield began to list. Then she turned over and sank. It's difficult to underestimate the impact of Sheffield's loss on the task force. Officers and men were appalled. A single enemy aircraft with a single exocet costing £300,000 had destroyed a British warship that cost around £23,200,000 to build. The British realised the fallibility of their own weapons. This was a shock. Sheffield had not fired chaff because she didn't believe she was being attacked, but from now on, all ships would fire chaff early. Then the Navy realised the Sheffield had been unable to use her fire mains once it was fractured. The mains had been united to speed up magazine flooding in an emergency, but from now on, all fire mains were divided, creating redundancy. Four miles of PVC plastic cable that ran through the Sheffield contributed to the toxic smoke that overcame many of the crew. Some of the more experienced sailors reminded their officers about the steel ships of the World War II era, which took repeated hits without burning. The Fletcher-class destroyer, for example, that was hit by five kamikazes in 1945 and didn't burn, partly because it wasn't full of PVC. Modern British ships were full of plastic and synthetic fibers, which were a disaster when on fire. Something else struck the task force men, the reality of war. Up to now, they were living with the image rather than the reality. Never again would the main task force operate so close inshore. And from now on, Admiral Woodward was faced with a dilemma. The plan was to entice the Argentinians out to fight full-scale naval and aerial battles, but had to move his ships further out to sea, reducing the threat facing Buenos Aires, which meant they didn't come out. The two pilots who fired the Exocet still have no idea which was responsible for the sinking of the Sheffield, and both told journalists afterwards that their personal reaction was nothing more than a job well done. They didn't think of it as revenge for the Belgrano or anything. They were merely professional combat pilots doing their job. As for the French, they were well pleased with how their missile had performed, even though it had hit a NATO ally and killed sailors. Aerospatial took out a full-page advertisement in French armaments magazine Heracles, where they enthused that First engagements in the Falklands conflict have spotlighted three French weapon systems amongst those equipping Argentine armed forces. The British did not take too kindly to this crowing over the deaths of their seamen, but then again, their navy had pulverized the French navy at Mers al Kabir in Algeria in 1940 in order to stop French ships falling into German hands. The French navy had never forgiven the British for that. Next episode, we'll hear about Operation Sutton and plans to land British forces at San Carlos. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. And if you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.